Welcome to Enacting the Kingdom, a podcast about liturgical worship. My name is Father Yuri Gladio, and I'm an Orthodox Christian priest with a lifelong desire to keep learning. I'm joined by my teacher and friend, Father Jeffrey Reddy. Father Jeffrey holds a doctorate in liturgical theology and is the co-director of the Orthodox School of Theology at the University of Toronto. Every three weeks, Father Jeffrey and I release an hour-long episode regarding an aspect of Orthodox life. However, only patrons get access to the last half hour of our discussion. If you'd like to hear the rest of this conversation, you can head over to pryingpriest.com support. But for now, enjoy the first half of this double feature. Welcome, everybody. Well, I'm going to start again. Whew. <laughs> Welcome, everybody, to another episode of Enacting the Kingdom, a double feature, Father Jeffrey. How are you doing? I'm doing very well. How about yourself? I'm doing quite well. It's a bit of a dreary morning here in Hamilton, Ontario, but it's not going to be a dreary episode, I'm telling you that. Well, I'm interested to see where this goes. Yeah, we are going to find out. So today's (laughs) topic is colonialism and orthodoxy. Colonialism and orthodoxy. I... I think this is a bit of a hot topic, right? There's a lot of opinions going around about colonialism. And I don't really want to talk just just about colonialism in Canada. I want to primarily talk about how orthodoxy fits in with this wider picture. Um, And I'm hoping that you can fill in some of the blanks in my knowledge, Father Jeffrey. Um, I I thought maybe we could start with talking a bit about um, the fact that you know, my understanding is that um, over the past couple of hundred years, you had these imperial powers in Western Europe that came over to North America and settled and, you know, uh, came, came in here and, and, and brought, you know, their faith with them, their culture with them. And it at times supplanted uh, the cultures that were here, sometimes violently, sometimes um, uh, nonviolently. Uh, and, my understanding is that the only the only country that came in that actually had orthodoxy as its found as its religion of of the country was Russia and they came in through Alaska. Do I have that right? Yeah, I mean I think the, in broad terms everything you've said is is precisely, you know, what people think of in terms of, of colonialism and so forth. I mean, you mentioned the word imperialism there, and I think it's important to distinguish the two. I mean, they, they do go hand in mm-hmm. hand at times. I mean, think of, in particular, you know, something like the British Empire, which had, um, you know, all the trappings of empire that you would normally associate, but it was also married to a, a kind of form of colonialism, but they don't necessarily go hand in hand. So, in other words, there are empires that were not colonial, uh, in, in their orientation. Okay. And there were there were nations that were not imperial, but were nevertheless had kind of a, a colonial, you know, kind right. of, uh, you know, a, a approach and methodology in terms of approaching, you know, undiscovered countries from their perspective, yeah. obviously quite discovered, you know, from the perspective of the people who are already living there. Yeah, I used, uh, I used those terms interchangeably for a long time. Yeah, and, and I think so, therefore, you know, if we go back in time, because orthodoxy and empire have a lot you know, of kind of uh, truck and trade or concourse over the, over the years, right? So we've 
talked previously about things like the the Byzantine Empire, the East Roman Empire, the Christian Roman Empire, you know, as it you know it existed in the East a thousand years longer than than the Western Roman Empire, you know, had done. And it's it's less though in in terms of a colonial sort of outlook, and more just in terms of you know, governing over a kind of wide population with different kind of people groups within that, for, for better or for worse. I mean, we can do a whole episode at some point just about imperialism. And to some extent, that continues in a way in the East with the Ottomans, right? So they, they kind of supplant Byzantium, but it's the same kind of deal. You've got a an empire um, with, with some sort of overall, you know, control from, from the center, but a lot of the groups within that are allowed to kind of exist on their own and, and form their own, you know, kind of mini uh, cultures and populations within that imperial structure. So it's a particular kind of political arrangement that doesn't necessarily imply, you know, colonial economic power, you know, military engagement and, and so forth. Um, so I mean, some of the nations in Europe that were colonial powers, we wouldn't necessarily have called empires. Uh, I'm thinking maybe of uh, the Dutch or the Portuguese or whatever, who had vast colonies, but but in not the kind of trappings of empire in quite the same way as, say, Britain or indeed Russia. I mean, Russia was an empire. Uh, you know, even today there are some 200, you know, different people groups within you know, the Russian state. And, and even bef before that, obviously, its boundaries you know, extended even further, and certainly into North America, not only Alaska, but then down the western coast of, of what is today Canada and the United States. Yeah, I think a lot of Orthodox people are very proud of the fact that the Orthodox faith wasn't used to sort of, um, uh, in the same way that maybe the Anglican or, or the Catholic um, uh, versions of Christianity may, may maybe have been used by the state to uh, 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 to put their power forward, right? Mm -hmm. That I think a lot of Orthodox people say, "Well, we never did that. We never did that." And I think, in a sense, that's true, and in a sense, that's also not true, um, from my understanding. So, so my understanding being that Russia sent you know, missionaries over to help with the traders uh, that were the Russian traders that were in that Alaskan area. Is that, that's how Russia came into North America. Do I have that right? Yeah. So, I mean, a couple of things, you know, are happening at the same time, at least, you know, uh, and this is the case, you know, for the Western uh colonial powers as well it's it's not a simple you know um equation usually there, there's a number of different things happening at the same time so you have the the kind of uh economic and and political and military expansion of of nations and uh, you know in that first economic model it was also predicated on something else we should probably talk about which is called mercant mercantilism which is about you know, exploiting colonies for their raw resources and sending those back to what was called the metropole, you know, the kind of home country, as it were, for processing, you know, and this is going hand in hand with the early development of industry and, and so forth. So the processing of, say, you know, spices or sugars or or furs or whatever into products that, that could be consumed in, in Western Europe. And so in the Western European nations are doing this, Russia, you know, is doing this. So they're sending their traders early, 
early on they reach you know alaska in the 1700s and uh, it's kind of in hand in hand with that expansion and with that sort of migration of people that you got you know the bringing of, of of christian faith in the form of you know missionaries or chaplaincy support as it were to traders and and that sort of thing but in the case of russia i think the other thing to keep in mind is that this is been a long and slow process. When we talk about the kind of baptism of Rus um, in 988, this is thousands of miles away from you know where Russia extends, right by the by the 1700s. Mm-hmm. Uh, so over most of a millennium, you know, from 988 up into the 1700s, the church is slowly making its way across the vast Russian you know, landscape. And so, you know, and Siberia itself is, is, you know, many times larger than all of Europe put together, right? And, and so that process over many, many centuries was also, you know, kind of culminating, you know, by the 1700s and crossing, you know, the, the Bering Sea into Alaska and so forth. So there was an already moving mission of the church through through those centuries. And so at the same time as Russia is expanding in terms of its you know colonial mer- mercantile economy and so forth, you get a desire on on the part of the church to continue the mission, to c- continue to spread the gospel, you know, across all of those people groups. We can talk about some of the, the earlier, you know, examples of some of that in, in the Russian, you know, uh, countryside and so forth, stretching from the far west, you know, European Russia into Asian Russia, you know, and beyond. And you know, so yeah, around the time the the Russian traders are are, are there, you start to get that the church saying, yeah, we'll we'll send you know these missionaries, and to hear some of their stories initially is quite incredible. These are the longest missionary journeys in human history. You know, take all of Paul's journeying, you know, in his whole lifetime of of missionary work, multiply it a hundredfold, and you get the kind of single journey that one of these missionaries would have taken from where they trained to to arriving, you know, in places you know, uh, in, in Alaska, where the first missionaries would have set up, you know, orthodoxy there. Do you think that if if it was easier for Orthodox Russia to get to North America, that there, they would have participated or they would have maybe been more involved in the colonizing of North America? Like, would that have, I mean, we're, this is speculation, I guess. Um, but it seems to me that the the distance itself is one of the main factors that it inhibited Russia from joining the rest of Europe in in colonizing North America. Well, yeah, as I say, they had a job themselves, just kind of colonizing, or, you know, continuing to to kind of expand control over the entirety of Russia. I mean, take the entire British Empire, put it together; it's smaller than you know, what Russia is just itself, right? So the, the the main job that Russia had in terms of establishing empire was in its own, you know, ultimately what would become its own kind of singular, you know, landmass, as it were. So, so certainly, yeah, I mean, it, from Moscow to Alaska is a vast, vast distance. And it's not to say that that couldn't be, you know, bridged somehow. I mean, think of, you know, Portugal to its colonies and things like that, although that was largely over the sea and the sea was more of a highway. Just the the land journey itself from from Moscow to to Alaska would have taken months. And so, 
so yeah, I, I think you're right. I mean, by the time Russians get to Alaska, they're nearly spent <laughs> in terms of energy and, and dynamism and, and so forth. And so it won't expend extend too much further than I may also think about the kind of wilderness and landscape of Alaska even today I mean apart from people living on the the, the coast there's mostly wilderness and it's impenetrable right and so the mission tends to, to stay along the coast and then head down the coast to as far as you know North California today uh, and if you go visit you know places north of San Francisco you find evidence of the the Russian missions that that had been there and and have been there for um, you know more than 200 years and so so yeah and it's at that point that Russians are confronting the other empires the Spanish the French and and so forth what i'm struck by in the stories that i hear of these russian missionaries is not only is because of the huge distance from where they were in Alaska to maybe where their home bishop or the bishop who is in charge of them is, um, or their authorities, you can't communicate easily. There's no text messaging. There's no Zoom chats that you can do at that time. So to send letters and to receive letters, because I'm assuming could sometimes be years in the making, and well, yeah, to have a return conversation, certainly. And and you were dependent, obviously, on, you know, when the next ship came in with the Russian fur traders or or whoever else. And, mm-hmm. and I mean, we'll get into this, obviously, but the, the relationship between those who would become those famous missionaries of the Orthodox Church to Alaska and the other Russians was very fraught, you know, from the get-go. And this is what you had been alluding to before, I think, in terms of the approach the church took was maybe a little bit different from, say, what the Roman Catholics or Anglicans took in other parts of, of North America or, or elsewhere. And from the beginning, the the church, at least in some of those key figures that we remember and we glorify as saints and, and so forth, took a, a very dim view of the way the Russian traders were behaving. And so you can imagine that would somewhat undermine communication, <laughs> supplies, you know, the ability to, to travel, you know, back and so forth. If the very, you know, having come and having met the indigenous peoples there, the church took immediate, you know, side with them against the Russian you know, uh, merchants and traders and so forth. And that meant, you know, you were e- even more cut off from the metropole, uh, in this case, you know, the, the far western part of Russia you, you come from. And so I can imagine that to arrive in Alaska as, an, as a missionary from the church would, would sometimes mean, you know, you are cut off for years, decades even. And it makes sense of things like, you know, when we hear someone like St. Innocent comes and spends 20 years, you know, learning the, the language and the culture of the indigenous peoples he's, he's living with before he even begins to preach the gospel. You think, well, how can anybody spend that long, you know, doing anything? Well, they were cut off in any way because of that difficult relationship with the other Russians who, who were, you know, to be perfectly honest about it, not behaving any better than any of the Portuguese or Dutch or British or French or others who had come Mm, into contact mm. with indigenous peoples. It's only that we remember, I think this is why we cast over the Orthodox, you know, colonial experience, a slightly, you know, more positive view. It's because of those heroes of the faith that we remember, the St. Hermans, the St. Innocents, the St. John's, um, and so forth, that, uh, you know, we're we're truly, um, 
you know, representative of bringing the gospel to people uh, in a way that was incarnational and in, in keeping with the, the orthodox approach of, of baptizing whatever could be baptized in a culture rather than just trying to obliterate what they saw there and civilizing. You know, that was the big, you know, colonial project was to bring the 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 superior civilization of the Christian West, you know, and, and that would include, you know, Western Russia it was clearly a European power, a sort, you know, two primitive, savage, you know, un, un, uncivilized peoples. And so uh, because the church has these particular saints and heroes who did not participate in that, we, we can kind of have a slightly more positive appreciation of that. But, you know, the legacy of all of that, you know, we also need to kind of look at, I mean, there's issues of power and so forth. The whole post-colonial project of, uh, you know, critiquing that whole period and and even the ongoing legacy of it is something I think Orthodox equally need to participate in. It's not, we can stand apart and just point at some great examples of those who didn't do the exploitation on the same level and say, somehow we're exempt, you know, from, from all of this. Because, I mean, the reality is today, yes, there is an indigenous Alaskan Orthodox church of, of sorts, but, you know, they look like, Byzantine, Russian Byzantine priests in terms of the way they dress, in terms of their icons, their architecture. They've not once had uh, an, an indigenous bishop in Alaska over the last 240 years or so. And so uh, there's there's a job to be done yet um, in terms of, of fulfilling a, a kind of totally uncolonial way of, of bringing the gospel to, to those indigenous peoples. Like there is the kind of process of, of rethinking the approach that was made by, by the Western missionaries that we see, you know, reflected in things like the truth and reconciliation commission in Canada and so forth. In terms of just those Russian missionaries that came to North America. So you, we were talking a little bit about how these Russian missionaries were so far away from their centers of, let's say, church power or ecclesiastical power or civil power that they were almost alone in these places. You would almost have to uh, get along and to co-live and to learn to love the local people, right? Just just to survive. Um, you would need to have that, that community. Um, and were those Russian missionaries like primarily living with indigenous communities or were there um, uh, trader camps and stuff like that? Were they primarily there? I'm not sure if we even have direct answers for that. But. Yeah, but by and large, you know, they, they would come, you know, attached to some sort of trade uh, project or, you know, mission or, or whatever, but, but would, you know, in terms of settling, they would try to enter into and, and join with the indigenous peoples as quickly as possible. I mean, clearly there probably were, you know, priests and others who would come and just stay on, on the merchant ships, right. And just minister to sailors the way, you know, that you can imagine that happens in, in the Navy and so forth. Um, but those whose names we have, whose mission has been recorded, who's, you know, whom we glorify as saints, even were the ones who stayed, the ones who, who who almost immediately took up cause with the indigenous peoples, who you know who did not uh, stand for the way that the the merchants and traders were were treating them. You know the the, the 
all the same kind of exploitation that you can imagine having taken place in other parts of of the Americas were taking place there. You know, the disease was brought um, that diseases hadn't been known, you know, to uh, to those populations, you know, and, and so they had very little protection against this. So there was an awful lot of hospital and hospice, you know, kind of care that had to be provided by, by the missionaries. Um, you know, there, there was the, the bringing of, of, of alcohol um, and the kind of problems that, that would accrue from that, that had not been known as a substance you know, amongst the, the the people there before, so there, there was care that needed to happen just as an immediate result of the interchange, you know, between the populations, and then. Obviously, there were attempts to put, you know, indigenous peoples into, you know, kind of some, some kind of slave or servant labor and, and so forth. So from the beginning, the, the Orthodox missionaries that we know of and we, we tell their stories, they were taking up that cause and opposing them at great cost. You know, at times, you know, it meant being abandoned, you know, by by Russia, you know, uh, or by, you know, with the, the resources that maybe would have been there for, for the, those missionary efforts were, were cut off. And so, so very quickly, the, the, the church indigenized in, in that sense. Um, and, and therefore, you know, it became a little bit more, you know, maybe the natural thing to do is to say, well, hang on a minute. If, if that's the case, then let's try to make it work in your culture, in your language and, and so forth. And so, you know, hence the translation efforts, the, the efforts to, to kind of, uh, provide alphabets and written language for languages that had only been you know, oral languages to that point, um, and so forth. And just the, the general desire to improve the life and living conditions, uh, you know, of those populations that became a major feature of the early Alaskan missions. It's my understanding that the numbers of Russian Orthodox in North America, you know, let's say that 17 to 1800s, um, uh, those two centuries, relative to the number of different kinds of Christians, whether they be Anglican, Protestant, or Catholic, was very few. Like there, there wasn't a large, um, that there wasn't a large Orthodox presence even in North America until such time as the immigrations in the 20th century. Um, do I have that right? Well, yeah, I mean, it, it's still the case today. I mean, look at the population numbers in Alaska. This is remote, right? This is not... Uh, habitable <laughs> territory for most human beings, and so the people who who live there, like the people who live in the far north of of Canada, right in Nunavut or Yukon or Northwest Territories, I mean, you need a lot of courage and strength and endurance uh, to to even live there, and they're not vast numbers. What is striking, I suppose, is the the amount or the, you know, the kind of the impact that the, the these Russian missionaries had in bringing the Orthodox faith or I think seeing the positive engagement that the, the Christians were making with them as opposed to you know that immediate example of the the Russians who were who were, who were not there to to help them who were there to exploit them I mean the the people were impressed right so people like saint herman today even today are widely revered amongst the the alaskan indigenous peoples because they they saw someone who who genuinely you know cared for them so the the numbers are you know very very small compared to the number of people that you would find in other parts of the americas at that point which i mean obviously not 
absolutely crammed, but I mean, there, there were relatively large, you know, populations in different places. But that was not the case in Alaska. But amongst those who were there, there was a high level of, of impact, which is why the, you know, the stories are remembered. So we're not talking about baptism of thousands upon thousands of people, but you know, when in a small population of, of hundreds in, in different places where the, the church made inroads, it was significant. And I think it's remembered for, for that impact rather than for, you know, baptizing by the, by the scores. The hymns that we sing uh, as Orthodox Christians for the saints that established themselves in Alaska are often actually very beautiful and very good. Sometimes they talk a lot about, um, you know, bringing light to people in darkness. And, and of course, these are the same kinds of hymns we sing for, you know, cave and, the conversion of Cave and Roost, right? We, we talk about um, saints that bring the, the first saint to bring a gospel to a new land is called an enlightener, right? It's just, these are just regular terms, right? Bringing light to darkness. This is language that's used in the scriptures. Um, light into darkness. But there's something, I guess, me growing up in Canada in the 21st century and, and being aware of these colonial issues and the way that Christianity has been used to supplant um, certain populations of indigenous people. I find I get this like um, uncomfortable feeling when we're singing about like, let's say, Herman of Alaska, who's one of the greatest uh, missionary saints of this of this time coming and you know enlightening a people in darkness right it it it's the same language we use for other parts of the world and 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 it's this it's the it's a consistent language we use throughout our hymnography and the scriptures but there's something about it that it gives me i don't know an uncomfortable feeling do you get that uncomfortable feeling father jeffrey i think and i know what you're talking about um and you can't help but you know, enter into that kind of critique, self-critique reflection and so forth um, in hearing those words, you know, today. Because, of course, it's not easy to parse out what is genuinely the bringing of the gospel, um, which is to be celebrated, right? I mean, that we believe in the truth of the claim that Jesus Christ is Lord, and that is the apostolic Kerygma, right? That, that that core message that is to be brought from Jerusalem through Judea and Samaria and all the parts of the world, as it says in in the Gospels and in the Book of Acts, and that that message of God's kingdom having been inaugurated in the life, death, and resurrection and ascension of Jesus Christ is a message for all peoples at all times. And so a couple of things, you know, need to be borne in mind. That can never be anything other than enlightenment and illumination for any person and people group that, that, that encounter it, right? There's nothing that can take away, you know, from that. I think part of what we need to continue to remember, though, is that that's true of us today. It's, you know, and it's true of the people that, that we would maybe feel that we're part of, you know, and for many of us, that's different people groups because we come from, from such um, varied backgrounds and mixed backgrounds and, and so forth. So in other words, it's not that we are the enlightened uh, for all time bringing, you know, illumination to these unenlightened peoples. That's not the relationship here. It's not a power or a superiority 
equation here. It is about we ourselves having been enlightened and continuing to be enlightened. That's the other Orthodox Christian, you know, truth here that, you know, every day we wake up to be enlightened. Every day we are the people that sat in darkness upon whom a great light has shined, right? I mean, that that needs to be our continual reality. That's the continual reality of ongoing repentance and reorientation towards the kingdom of God. That if we if we keep that in mind, if that's our our framework here, that it is the gospel alone and the message of the gospel that is enlightening, and that we ourselves are part of a process of ongoing enlightenment. On that basis, we can approach people whoever they are, whether it's in our own, you know, society. And let's be honest, the vast majority of people are unenlightened in that sense today, even in our cities, even in in Western Christian civilization, however you want to construe it. And that was the case also, I would say, in the 16 and 1700s. You know, it, the, the, it was not an enlightened Western Europe enlightening the rest of the world. It should have been understood as the gospel itself is the light, Christ himself is the light, and that's the light that needs to be brought to everybody, whether it was London or Lisbon or Moscow, or indeed the far reaches of, you know, where these traders and, and missionaries, you know, were going. So the problem with the language that you're, you know, mentioning is that it's not quite so straightforward, at least not in the way we interpret it a lot of the time. We see that as a kind of, you know, this group has the truth and this other group doesn't. And that creates this imbalance in terms of power. And when that's married to all of the other issues of political, military, economic, and social, you know, control and exploitation, well, then the gospel just gets to be mixed up in it and not only mixed up in it, but giving it a kind of holy or divine warrant, right? That somehow not only, you know, are people exploiting indigenous peoples in, in different parts of the world, but they're doing it in the name of God, right? And it becomes justifiable that, you know, people are deprived of their their way of life, their culture, their language, their, you know, their traditions and, and, and so forth, which you know, if if it were reserved to bringing the gospel and bringing Jesus Christ Himself, as we see exemplified in some of these, you know, best examples of of incarnational mission in Saint Herman, Saint Innocent, and others, well, then, you know, that wouldn't be you know a problem. None of that language would be called in into question because that's all we're talking about, right? And so, I suppose a few things I guess I would want to do with that language, not change it because I'm not I'm. I'm would very, very rarely want to go in and kind of, you know, rewrite text. I don't think that's the point. I think we need to change and rewire hearts rather than than texts as such. But where I would want to recall people to is that it's not an us and them. You know, any kind of interpretation of Orthodox liturgy or text or whatever that says there's an us and there's a them is a problem. It should always be we. And so we are part of the unenlightened that need to be enlightened and, and so forth. Same kind of thing comes into play when we talk about, you know, texts between Christians and Jews and that sort of thing, whether we're reading the gospels or, or celebrating the Orthodox services and so forth. It's not, you know, they who you know, killed God or they who did this. We, you know, we are all in this together. And I think it's that sort of fundamental identification and, um, you know, uh, 
solidarity of us as human beings that needs to be brought to the forefront here. And that is what I see in a Saint Herman. That's what I see in a Saint Innocent. They made themselves to live in solidarity, you know, with the so-called unenlightened. They realized that they themselves were needing ongoing enlightenment. That's the basis of their spirituality. That's the basis of their mission. You've just finished listening to another public episode of Enacting the Kingdom. If you're getting value from this podcast and you'd like to support the show, you can head over to pryingpriest.com to become a patron. Also, five-star ratings with written reviews go a long way to getting the word out there about this show. Also, since Enacting the Kingdom is social media free, any word of mouth recommendations you can make to your friends and family would be greatly appreciated. We'll see you next time. 